So today we're going to talk about something that um, we began to talk about last week, but this week we're going to go into a little more detail, and, uh, and hopefully it will be helpful to you because one of the main reasons we're even having this class um, isn't necessarily so that you can find an atheist over at Clemson University and have a good debate. Uh, you probably won't find too many of those anyway, but... Uh, one of the main reasons we're working on apologetics is for you to be able to, to do your apologetics uh, in your heart and preach to yourself. Uh, because doubt isn't just for the unbelievers. So let's open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll start with an interesting question. Did everyone, before we start in prayer though, did everyone get their little sheet of paper that wants one. All right, good. All right, well, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you this morning for the way you have um, been good to us when we have not been good to you, when you have been merciful to us when we have not been merciful to others when you have been patient with us when we did not deserve patience. Lord, we pray for particular help today as we look into your word, that your graciousness would come upon us and that your Holy Spirit would work and humble our hearts before your word. Lord, we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Okay. Um. So today is more of a personal day uh, that we want to get into. Uh, We started off with a big, broad view of how it is that people think and how they interpret the world around them. We've talked about how that interpretation or that way of interpreting the world will end up uh, being the that which causes you to choose a way to defend the faith, which we call apologetics. We talked about how if you have a reformed view of the world, then there's only, uh, there's only a particular way you can even begin your apologetical method, and that is understanding your uh, sin and understanding what sin has done not only to the will but to the mind. And because of that, there's only particular ways that we can approach apologetics. We talked about the covenantal approach. We talked about all these things kind of in the ethereal. We started to apply it to ourselves last week. Um, And today, we want to get deeper into what it means to apply an apologetic to your own heart. Because today we want to ask the question, what is doubt? You will see at the top of your little sheet there. Uh, If any of you spent any time in education, you learn that not only do you have to have objectives for your students, but you need something to engage them. A question that will make them think and a question that will be answered at some point during the lesson. 
And so that's what I'm doing with you now. So um, instead of asking what doubt is, maybe we can talk about in what way does doubt come out? Uh, what are your experiences with people you know who have begun to doubt? Whether, uh, but particularly I want to talk about believers. People that you might suspect are Christians or maybe in a Christian world. Uh, maybe they go to a Christian school. Maybe they're in your church. And you have had people uh, doubt. Now this is different. Doubting is different than simply having questions, right? There's lots of questions. When people talk to you about the Trinity, you should have lots of questions, and they should have answers. In other words, they should know where our line of understanding goes and where it drops off in a mystery. They should explain that to you, and um, whether it satisfies you or not, uh, I don't know if that matters as much, but the fact that there should be answers to your questions is important. But then there's a step beyond merely having questions, right? Where you think, you begin to believe or begin to uh, stop believing, right? Where there's a doubt going on, where you feel that maybe this whole thing just can't even be right at all. Have any of you had any experiences with people who have shared with you the fact that they are doubting? Okay. Um, I, I heard what you're saying. I've got a chance to make sure we're on the same wavelength. Is this sometimes called a crisis of faith? Yes, I th that's a good way of putting it. A crisis of faith. Okay, good. Yeah, that's fine. And that's excellent. So, so it doesn't, it's not just an angsty teen who uh, comes up with doubts because they think mom and dad doesn't know what they're talking about and they're smarter than everybody else. Adults have doubts, right? But let's, uh, now that we're on the subject, how about you teens? Uh, have you come across other teenagers at your school uh, or anywhere else that you can tell that they're not really asking questions out of curiosity, they're asking questions because they're already well into doubt and they think this whole thing doesn't make any sense to me so I have questions because I'm so... Uh, I, I, okay, Anna, you, you've, you've had that? Um, okay. Do you remember any of their arguments or anything that they, their biggest issue? Okay, so sometimes it comes down to logical issues. 
Why can't God create a rock that's so big he can't pick it up? And there's an answer to that. That would be a sin, right? It'd be sinful of God to, to tempt himself, to go against his own nature. And so there's an answer. Uh, now, whether that is satisfying to that young man or not, probably not. Because what, he, what he's trapped in is a very, very small uh, linear thinking which in uh, logic has terminologies and all these sort of things. And he believes that God must fit into the tiny box of logic that I'm familiar with at this point. you know. And so if he doesn't, then there's a problem. And the real problem would be if he did. <laughs> if God did fit in the tiny box of logic that uh, we understand at this point, that'd be a big problem. Uh, creational things usually fit into logical boxes. <laughs> Uncreated things will never fit into a logical box because logic is designed for creational things. That's another answer. Probably not satisfying, but true. <laughs> All right. So now the question is, when someone has, has these doubts and they bring up the issue that they're talking about where they're saying, okay, why can't God make a rock that's so big he can't pick it up or, or whatever, is that really the thing that's causing them the doubt? That's the question. When it comes to the technicalities, right, where a lot of theologians have already dealt with those, usually back in uh, the medieval times. Um, so they've been solved a long time ago, but of course people don't read anymore. My point is that, you know, that's, is that really the issue of their doubt? And that's what we want to talk about today. Because my main concern is your heart today. Right? Because it's very easy to talk about other people who have come and gone in our lives, who have maybe come up with doubts, maybe even tempted you with doubts, um, and, uh, and say, well, that's them. But today we want to look at us. What happens when we begin to doubt? And if I am talking about doubt and you're like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never doubted in my life. Then I don't uh, understand you. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, I also don't believe you. So, okay. <laughs> okay, so. If you recall... There's a two-movement step to the apologetical method that we have been talking about in covenantal apologetics. The first is to show the logical end of the unbeliever's assumptions, if you remember that. You're not taking on their ground, right? You're not taking on their grounding. You're not taking on their beliefs and saying, okay, um, I believe what you believe. Now let me argue my way out of this. Uh, but you're showing them from what you believe, this is where it leads. And then the second step is to show the biblical grounding for a believer's hope. Even if they don't believe in the Bible. Because they probably won't. right? Because when the Bible is at its uh, most effective is when we believe it's the most ineffective. I want you to keep that phrase in mind as we go through today. The Bible is at its most effective 
precisely at the moment when we think it is at the most ineffective. This not only goes for when you speak to an unbeliever, but this goes for when the unbeliever is you. So, I would like you to turn to James chapter 1. And I want to introduce to you a major problem that many of us might have had, or maybe even have at this moment, um, that almost seems like a paradox in James chapter 1. So in James chapter 1, James is introducing himself as a bondservant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and, he's, and he is writing to the 12 tribes who are uh, dispersed abroad. Okay? So this dispersal, okay, all, he's speaking to people who are suffering in some way. Okay. And the first thing he says after his greeting is, in verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But... If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives, all, uh, who, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given him. But, here's a condition, but he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Okay. So here's the paradox. You have people that are um, under a crisis of faith, right? It's literally talking about their faith being the thing that is tested. Okay? So something is occurring that's causing their faith to waver. It's being tested. And the test is, can you maintain your faith? Right? Or is this going to destroy you? And so there you have this huge tension. Right? In your faith, which causes what? When you have that crisis of faith, what begins to well up that we've been talking about? Doubt. But then it says, hey, if you're lacking the wisdom that you need to help you with this crisis of faith, then ask the Lord, but don't doubt. Because a doubting person is a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. But wait a minute, I need, that's what I'm asking for, is for more faith so I stop doubting. But I, when I ask, I'm not allowed to doubt. Do you see the paradox? I'm in a situation where my faith is tried. This means, you know, the thing that causes you to believe is being tried. 
And when you ask for wisdom, you have to ask without the thing that you're asking to get rid of, which is doubt. Why is Scripture saying that you're supposed to ask for wisdom without the thing that you feel like you're fighting at the time? How do I ask God to take away my doubt when asking for that wisdom to take away my doubt can't be present if I'm going to receive the wisdom? Paradox. What was that? Okay, we're going to get to that. That's good. Okay, but isn't it true? So, uh, I'm sorry, for those of you who couldn't hear, uh, Nathan said hope. What about hope? I mean, if you don't have hope, um, which is very important, right? Sometimes in Scripture, faith is even referred to as hope. But it, how much doubting are you allowed to have in order to get wisdom? Can you have just a little doubting? Can you have just... Maybe, you know, I have, I have some faith left over, but, you know, I have maybe 50% doubting. Or I have some doubt. Does it say you can't have any doubting? Let's see. But he lacks wisdom, let him ask. God is generous in giving. But he must ask in faith without, what's that word there? Any doubting. But isn't that the problem that you're struggling with, which is causing the crisis of faith in the first place? Okay. Yeah, the, the end product is making it through this crisis of faith. There is a habit here that's, that is being learned. Habit in the, in the good sense, the medieval sense of creating a good response to a bad situation habit that's being established so that you will endure. So what are some things we can get out of James to try and solve this paradox? Your first blank there is, uh, the Christian life involves a testing of the faith. So... This means your Christian life, because of the fall, and because you still have within you the old man. There is still within you the old man, the flesh, as Paul puts it. And because of that, um, your faith is going to be tested. Um, some of you understand what it's like when your faith is tested. Uh, it's funny how everyone becomes a Calvinist when their faith is tested, right? Because when, when the stress of life, right, when something happens in your life where things really start getting difficult for you, it might mean that God took someone away from you and they're gone, they might be dead. They might have walked away from you and will never come back. 
you might be betrayed by people. People you have invested in have now turned on you, and you feel completely alone. You might be in a marriage that has created a situation where you do not feel connected to that person anymore, and you live in this horrible tension in which you have a roommate and not a wife or a husband. You might have children that you have worked hard on and they walk away from the faith. They walk away from you. Whatever it is, there is incredible um, pain that comes into our lives. Okay? And maybe many of you know what that's like. And when that happens, who is the first person that you think about and have a hard time not blaming and hating for those things? God. This happens even with the atheist. This happens with the agnostic. This happens with all humans when something really bad happens. How can this, something this bad happen if God is good? And they don't say that with a theoretical idea. They say it with hate in their eyes because they do believe all things come about by God's hand. In the end, everyone becomes a Calvinist when things get tough, right? Because God is the first person they blame. I remember, uh, I probably told you the story already, but please act like it's the first time. Um, we, when I was in my philosophy program, I, there was this guy next to me that I always sat next to only because of, as you get older, everything just happens by habit. They don't have to assign seats anymore. Wherever you sat that first day, that's where you're sitting for the rest of your life. And so I, I happened to be sitting with this guy, and I'm, he was, I, I have to admit, I was kind of upset by him. Because he was one of those more arrogant guys that really believed he was an atheist, uh, but of course he wasn't, because he was mad at the thing he didn't believe existed, which was God. Um, and so, uh, one day the, the professor came in and talked about how in Africa there were people raising, rising from the dead, and people that had their certificates uh, of death in their hands, you know, with pictures, you know, hey, I'm like, well, how'd they get out of there? Ah, the grave. I mean, they, I mean, they. It was this bizarre thing where they believed, and it even made it to NPR, which you know, of course, is the bastion of all things true. And so, and so he's bringing this thing, and uh, and the guy next to me just thought it was amazing and awesome. He said, "That's amazing. People are raising from the dead. That's incredible." And he and I was like, "What?" And I kind of laughed, and he said, and he just. I mean, just lost it. He says, what are you laughing about? You believe that Jesus Christ raised from the dead, and you can't believe that these people are raising from the dead? And I said, well, yeah, I don't believe it, because raising from the dead is kind of a big deal. It's kind of like the whole reason why Christianity is, you know, this amazing supernatural religion, because, like, no one else is doing this. And, you know, he didn't appreciate my response, and so he just, he got so upset. So then afterwards... I, you know, I started talking to him after the class, and I said, well, what's going on? Why, why are you so upset about Christianity? I mean, if you really don't believe it, then you wouldn't be upset by it. You'd probably pity people that got into this weird cult. And, I mean, I'm not mad at Scientologists. I think it's wacky and creepy, 
but I'm not mad at him. I mean, why are you so mad at Christians? So he goes into this big story about how, and the, this is master's level, I mean, it's not PhD, but I mean, it's master's level the, uh, philosophy course, you know, and, you know, this guy was a pretty smart guy. And you would think when someone says, why do you hate Christianity so much? You would then go into this intellectual idea of, you know, well, they have all these contradictions. They don't, you know, their God can't, is supposed to be perfect and almighty, but he can't even make a rock that he can't lift or something like that. You know, something intellectual. But it wasn't intellectual at all. The story was when he was a teenager, he went to a church, a local church, and the, the youth group treated him terribly. They wouldn't let him into, you know, they, they weren't loving to him. And maybe they weren't. I mean, that, I, I don't find that hard to believe. And so, and, and the youth pastor, you know, didn't welcome him. And he says, that's just, you know, this is typical. Just typical. There's a bunch of hypocrites. Uh, well, that's probably true. But uh, it doesn't mean that Christianity is wrong. I mean, don't you think it's weird that you're taking a personal story and applying it to all Christianity of, you know, several thousand years. Uh, and he just, that was the thing for him that convinced him. So I say all that to say that when it comes right down to it, who is he blaming for, for anything that goes wrong? His anger tells you he really does know that God brings all things about, right? And we know it. And so when the crisis comes, when the problem comes, when pain comes, our faith is tested. Testing, your next couple blanks there, is designed, if I can add that little word, testing is designed to produce perseverance. Okay? This endurance is that idea of perseverance. It starts with a P, like at the end of the word tulip. <laughs> Perseverance of the saints. It's one of the things we believe in from our point of view as Reformed believers. Not that you said a magical prayer, and because you said the magical prayer and said the same thing that you know, the youth sponsor was saying, and you said those magical words, you now have become a believer, uh, and now you're going to, now you're set. Basically, you got your free ticket to heaven, you can just kind of go on your way. If you fall away, it's no big deal, you, you said your magical prayer. And ironically, you would think that's how people would, have, would assume Reformed believers believe. But no, we believe in perseverance of the saints that the saints will persevere, that if salvation, if the, if the Holy Spirit really is within you, then you will persevere because you have the Holy Spirit. But that perseverance doesn't mean that you don't get to feel it. You understand what I'm saying? Perseverance of the saints isn't the, isn't the uh, painkiller, Right? You still have to endure the pain. You have to endure the work it takes when your faith is tested. So this testing will either produce perseverance or, your next blank there is, an unstable mind. 
What is an unstable mind? Uh, testing constrains us, okay? This constraint makes you feel like you are closed in, okay? So think of the things that have made you feel like your life has come down to zero choices, right? The pressure that parents put on kids. The feeling of being in a high school or at a school or maybe being homeschooled and you feel like your life is controlled and you can't get away from it. That you're in a situation where it seems like no one is your friend or no one likes you or you're just stuck in this realm of mediocrity and you want to get out and there's no way out. Where you feel trapped in a situation that as you look at, the, at your life you're wondering how you got there and you don't feel like there is an escape from it. You feel like the world is coming down around you and there's no escape. This is when our faith gets tested. And this is when we feel, your next blank there is, testing constrains us, reminding us we have no control. That we have no control. That is when we look at God not with gratefulness that he controls all things, but res with resentment. How is it that you put me here with this person? How is it that you put me here surrounded by people that are self-centered, horrible hip hypocrites, and I am stuck? Why is it that you did this to me? And we feel like there's no way out, there is no control over my own life, that God has trapped me into a corner, and I can't get away, and I'm angry. How do you gain control from a God that has control of all things? What is one thing you can do that will give you control back in your life? What do you think? You can doubt the one who is in control of all things. And so doubt, then, isn't what you think it is, right? We kind of see doubt as stumbling upon truth or suddenly realizing something we didn't realize before and now we have some kind of connection that goes beyond what all those religious people around you believe. That's kind of the way we see doubt. It's this innocent thing that your mind just kind of stumbled on and you're like, huh, I never thought about that. I'm, I'm not sure. How, well, how could any of these Christians account for that? I mean, I grew up Christian. I mean, I, I, I think I believe all this. But how is it that we could have a God that works this way, but in his word he says this, 
And that doesn't make any sense. I mean, maybe I've stumbled upon something that, has, that really is true. And now I'm honestly, through my honesty and, and, and just curiosity of, of life, have stumbled upon doubt. And what we've already forgotten is God has been constraining us and putting pressure on us. And we're desperate for a way out. A desperate for a way to control the situation. And if I start doubting the one who is in control, I can finally get my hands around all this and make, me, my, make myself feel like I can control this. When you think about the very first sin uh, actually committed by man, you see someone that is trying to gain control. His life is laid out. The covenant is set. Eat of this tree and die. Obey and live. Subdue and rule over the earth. Populate it with your wife. This is your work. This is your life. How do I get back so that I can control this stuff. I doubt. I doubt the one who set the covenant. Now I can choose. I can't choose, I can't make these choices and have the freedom to make choices when I'm, when I'm obeying. The only way I can get free and have control is my disobedience, my doubting of the one who has set the rules, who has set the covenant. So your next, your next blank there is, doubt allows us to imagine we have authority from God. Or I'm sorry, autonomy from God. Doubt allows us to imagine we have autonomy from God. Of course, autonomy is that feeling of independence, right? And we as Americans understand that idea. That idea of, yes, God is involved in my life, but in the end, I am in control. And when God does something that controls too much, and it hurts, and I want control, doubt is a handy little tool to make that happen. Yes. So doubt is not innocent. It is a suppression of the truth. That's right. It's, suppress it's suppression. And so James says, your faith is going to be tested. It's going to hurt. It might even seem paradoxical that God would do this when he's supposed to be your version of a good God. And he's supposed to have your version of kindness and your version of graciousness. And when he no longer fits your version when he starts testing your faith so that you understand that it is his version of what goodness is and not yours, where you stop creating a God in your heart that when he breaks the rule of the God you've made in your heart and he starts being himself, that you get upset about that. And he says, if you want wisdom, then you come to me in humility, not in the pride of doubt. Now, we have to understand there's that difference between doubt 
and not understanding and, you know, wanting questions answered, which is very important because I think, especially with young people, they aren't given answers. Uh, oftentimes, because, you know, whatever school they're going to, uh, they ask the question and the person in charge says, you know, gives you a lame answer because they're terrified of saying, I don't know. But whatever it is, it reinforces in their mind that no, these adults don't know what they're talking about. And I get that. But I'm talking about the doubt that sets in your heart that says, no, you can have control. Just say no to the one that caused all this. So asking for wisdom requires a humility before God, not a prideful uh, doubt. So the two movements, you see in Romans 1.21, I want you to see what the big problem of sin is. We've, ta- uh, we've talked about this in the past. Andrew has brought this up in his sermons a couple times now. The big problem in Romans 1, what makes a heart so evil, right, that they even that people stop using their bodies the way they were meant to be used for procreation between a man and a woman and they just they just burn in their lust for each other and they deny the 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 god who created man and woman for a particular reason what causes them to say i'm not going to worship the creator i'm going to worship whatever created what is at the heart of all that filth and sin and debauchery. Romans one twenty one gives us the main issue. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and then down and down and down till God said, enjoy yourself. I give you over to your lust. Who was it? C.S. Lewis, who's a very quotable guy. Just don't believe everything that he believed. (laughs) But he's a very quotable guy. And he said, if you really want to condemn an unbeliever, give them everything they want. It's the worst punishment you can give someone. And that is what God did. He allowed them to, he gave them over to their lusts so that their sins compound, compound the wrath that eternity is, will give them. And all this comes from ingratitude and lack of honor. Doubt is not stumbling upon truth. It is an ungrateful, proud attempt to become equal with God. The greatest act of warfare that Satan has committed against the believer is to convince him that his doubt is an honest curiosity that no one can satisfy and you really are so smart that you have outthought over 2,000 years of academic work in Christianity and you have figured out the big hole and you have figured out that that there's a problem with God that you are angry at and you will never stop believing in because you know he is there. 
that doubt is somehow this innocent thing that you just want answers when really you are cuddling it, you are flirting with it, you're, you're nursing it like a mother nurses his child or her child so that you can release yourself from the control that is constraining you. It is prideful. It's ungrateful. If that is the logical conclusion of what our doubt is, then what is the hope that we have? And Proverbs 9 is our hope. Isn't it great to be a Reformed person where you still get to use the Old Testament? I'm just kidding. There's plenty of my progressive dispensational friends would be very angry at me saying that. Okay. Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. The thing that James says, you, if you ask for it, God will give it to you. Just get rid of that doubt which is not honest questioning, but rather you saying no to God. You can't control everything. I'll deny you in order to get control back in my life. So that fear of the Lord is the hum most humble posture you can, you can uh, place yourself in before God. Where even within those feelings of doubt that come, that attack, while you are being constrained in your faith, fearing, your next blank there is, fearing the Lord is a humble posture in response to testing. Oh, I'm sorry, the previous one was ungrateful. It is an ungrateful, proud attempt to become equal with God. So before asking for wisdom, posturing yourself before God, even with all those feelings of doubt, those feelings you have that really stem from your desire to take control in your life, what is required before you even ask for wisdom? Let me, let me put it this way. Is doubt innocent? No. So when it's overwhelming your heart, what is the posture before God? Fear. What does that take? Repentance. It takes repentance. Before wisdom can be asked for, that denial of yourself to have control back in your life, to say that God was not fair in doing X. That has led me to want that control back and be equal with him. Of course, it's unreasonable to actually doubt God. But what you will find is that doesn't matter. That's why this apologetic is so important. Do you understand? When you are going through a crisis of faith, someone who found a really good argument why it's reasonable to believe in God doesn't mean anything to you. 
You can read through Alvin Plantinkin's book about why we have good warrant to believe that there is a God, and I guarantee you that's not going to help you. Who cares? There's probably, I mean, if you really work it out, there's probably warrant to believe in Scientology. I mean, no one has proven there isn't a Xenu on another planet who has frozen his enemies and threw them into lava pits. So, the important thing that I want us to learn today is when you fight your doubt, you are not fighting something innocent. You are fighting an attack on you. And this attack is coming from your heart to believe that the one in control should not be in control. And that repentance is required. And the thing that seems the weakest thing in your life at the time when this all happens is actually the strongest, most powerful thing you can find, which is God's word. You're going to feel that there's something stronger, you know, someone's really good argument or someone's really good whatever, but scripture will be the most powerful thing. At the time, it will seem the weakest let it lead you to repentance so that you can come to God without your doubt and say, give me wisdom. And you can say, give me wisdom because you have been told you can ask and he will give and you will beat this and this will give you incredible strength because you have gone through it, you have persevered and it will give you that assurance that you are God's child because you keep persevering, persevering. And you will watch people you know and maybe even people you love not persevere because they don't have the Holy Spirit to get them to that repentance. The thing they were hoping was true was based on something that turned out to not be reliable. Scripture is reliable. The Holy Spirit is reliable. And there is hope in the midst of doubt. All right. We're out of time. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we will get going on with our worship. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for how gracious you are to us, how merciful you are to us, and that you hold back your wrath you're gracious in that you give us your son. And that even after the sacrifice has been made and your Holy Spirit breaks our heart, Lord, our heart needs broken again and again, and we pray for that work. We even pray for that work of the Holy Spirit as we move into our worship service, that as your servant comes to us with your word to us, that our hearts would bow low before it. We would listen to our pastor and be grateful for the words that come to us from you, through him, to us. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.